Uh, you guys are in for a treat today. I mentioned this before. I am a hair jet lagged. Uh, I got in Friday night, so I'm a little bit concerned about what I might say with a microphone. So uh, I'm actually not going to be preaching today. Uh, you get an incredible gift. Uh, you're going to hear uh, from Dr. Tom Cash. Uh, Tom has been one of our elders uh, for years, just rolled off uh, this past year, but served for many years. A lot of you have gone through his double university classes before, and they are amazing. Uh, I was here for a service, and I am stoked for you to be able to hear what he's going to walk us through, through scripture, through archaeology. It is going to be amazing. You are going to be so glad that you came here this morning, because this is not the kind of thing you can hear on a podcast, by the way. So if you're listening to the podcast, good luck. Um, there, there's so many things to see, to understand, I mean, I'm just really glad you get to experience that today, uh, but as he comes up in the next few minutes, I hope that you will welcome Dr. Tom Cash uh, as he comes to lead and teach us today. Good morning, church. Um, I can't th- just tell you what a blessing that was to sit on the front row and hear that singing, first of all. Thank you so much, uh, worship team. And then, uh, it's such a privilege and an honor to have an opportunity to share a teaching with you from God's Word. Now, um, Before I launch into what I want to share with you, I want to do something that I just don't think we do enough, that we can do enough, and that is to remind us of how fortunate we are as a congregation to have Adam Robinson as our senior pastor. So Adam brings these incredible sermon series to us week in and week out, like the Secret of Marriage series that we just went through. Wasn't that amazing? And then before that, we had the Abide sermon series. That was incredible. Before that, there was the Worldview sermon series, just a wonderful sermon series. So when Adam is not spending all his time preparing these incredible sermon series for us, there's the countless numbers of hours that he spends in meetings with staff and elders and deacons across two campuses. There's the time that he spends in counseling, um, the time he spends doing marriages, funerals, visiting people in the hospital. And on top of all of that, He leads a mission team to Romania. So would you join me in just letting Adam know how much we appreciate all he does for our church? And I know he's here somewhere. So um, I feel like I should issue an apology to you right off the bat today because um, if you look at the screen, I think this might be your experience today. I I think you might feel like you're getting hosed down by information. So, um, apologies. One of my passions for a number of years now has been the study of biblical archaeology. I just love it. I can't get enough of it. So what is so great about biblical archaeology? Uh, Biblical archaeology causes the Bible to come alive. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought, wouldn't it be great to have a picture or, or some image of some person mentioned in the scriptures that came, you know, during their lifetime? Biblical archaeology actually provides that. So this is a life-size statue of the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III. Now, not only do we have his statue, but we have this obelisk that he left where he chronicles all of his great achievements. And the interesting thing about the obelisk is that it's illustrated. So if you look on the sides of this obelisk, there are these panels of illustration where he illustrated some of these achievements. And so I want to bring your attention to the second one down on one of the sides. I'm going to zoom in on it for you right here. So this is the Assyrian king. King Shalmaneser right here. And then there's this person who is prostrated down before him in this position of submission down on his hands and knees. Now when the cuneiform writing was translated that, that uh, describes what's being illustrated here, this is what it said. I have received the tribute of Jehu, son of Omri, silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden goblet, golden cups, golden buckets, tin, a staff of the king's hand, and javelins. So here, this person 
down on his hands and knees. I'm going to zoom in on them for you. You can see them better here. This is the Israelite king Jehu. This is the only Israelite king that we've ever had uh, an image of that's been found um, archaeologically. Now, in our passage today that we're going to take a look at, the main character in that passage is an Assyrian king whose name was Joram. Jehu, who you're looking at right here, became the king of Israel by assassinating Joram, who we're going to be reading about today. And this is described for us in 2 Kings 9.24, where it says, Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. So, biblical archaeology can confirm the scriptures, even giving us an image of somebody that's mentioned in the scriptures, but it can also at times be complementary to the scriptures. And what I mean by that is this, sometimes the archaeological evidence, when you combine it with the scriptures, give us an even more clear picture of what was happening. So that brings me to the passage that I'd like us to take a look at today. If you have your Bibles, be turning to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, we're going to be in chapter 3. So 2 Kings chapter 3 is we're going to be in just a minute. We're going to read through these 27 verses, and we're going to try to understand what we're being told. But what I think you're going to find is we're going to be left with some questions. Questions like, you know, why did the the events happen in the manner in which they did? What actually happened here? And what was the end result? Now, before we look into these verses here, I want to give you a little bit of background. So I'd like us all to be more familiar with some of the kingdoms that surrounded the promised land that are going to be discussed in our passage today. So... When we talk about the promised land, most of that was made up of the area occupied by the Canaanites west of the Jordan River. And then they were bordered to their south along the Mediterranean coast by the Philistines. This is where Goliath was from that David defeated with a slingshot. And then to the north, the Canaanite territory was was bordered by Phoenicia. This is where Jezebel was from. And when she became queen of Israel, she brought this increased focus of Baal worship from, from Phoenicia. But the kingdoms I really want you to get a feeling for is on the south and the east side of the Jordan. So south of the Dead Sea, we have the kingdom of Edom. And then bordering Edom to the northeast between the Zered and the Arnon River is the kingdom of Moab. North of Arnon, between the Arnon and the Jabbok River, is the kingdom of the Amorites. North of the Jabbok, we had the kingdom of Bashan. North of that was the kingdom of the Arameans. And then east of these kingdoms, we had the kingdom of the Ammonites. And then I briefly want to describe uh, the the events that caused the Israelites to possess some of this land east of the Jordan. So in the time of Moses, when Moses brings the Israelites to the promised land, he brings them up along the east side of the Jordan to the border of the Amorites. And we're told in the scriptures that this king of the Amorites, whose name was Sion, brings his forces out against Israel. Israel is victorious, defeats the Amorites, and moves into their territory. Then the king of Bashan, whose name was Og, brings his forces against the Israelites. Once again, the Israelites are victorious. They defeat the kingdom of Bashan and move into that territory. Now, after conquering these kingdoms on the east side of the Jordan, several of the tribes, the tribe of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they come to Moses and they ask that this territory east of the Jordan be allotted to them as their tribal inheritance. And we read about this in the, in the book of Numbers 32, verse 33, where it says, Then Moses gave the, to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the whole land with its cities and territory around them. This is a map that shows how the promised land was eventually divided up among the 12 tribes. And you can see on the east side of the Jordan that this territory was given to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that we just mentioned. Now, if we go forward in time to the time of our passage, there's been a division in the kingdom of Israel. So 10 tribes of the 12 had broken away to form the northern kingdom of Israel, leaving two to the south called Judah. 
And this land east of the Jordan, the, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh were part of those ten that broke away. So the, the land east of the Jordan was actually uh, occupied by Israel during this time. All right, with that background, let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to read through this and see if we can understand what we're being told here. So this is verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. Now, this is a time stamp for us because the 18th year of Jehoshaphat was the year 852 B.C. So the events that we're about to read about happened about 850 years before the time of Christ. Reading on, we're told this. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. So the father and mother here of Joram was Ahab and Jezebel. And we mentioned how Jezebel, when she came from Phoenicia, brought this increased focus of Baal worship, this pagan worship of Baal with her. And Ahab had actually built this sacred stone of Baal and erected it there in probably the capital city of Samaria. Now behind me right here, this is a stone uh, erected in honor of Baal. I'll uh, give it some contrast so you can see it better. So Baal was this pagan storm god. He was thought to be in charge of bringing the rain. And so he's often depicted, as you see him here, with lightning bolts in his hand. Part of the worship of Baal often involved the, worship, the sacrifice of a bull. So you see him here standing on a bull. So perhaps Ahab had erected something similar to this in Israel. But when his son Joram became king, he got rid of that. Now, I'm reading out of the NIV right here. So if you have the ESV or the New King James Version, your version probably says that he put it aside, which is probably a better translation because we're going to see later that it's still around. So he, he did good here by getting rid of this sacred stone of Baal, but he's evil. And the rest of the verse tells us why that is. It says, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So what is the sins of Jeroboam? What does that mean? If we look again at this map of how the ten tribes broke away and formed the northern kingdom of Israel, the first king of that kingdom was Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And right after becoming king, he had this issue that he had to deal with, and that is the temple of the Lord was in Jerusalem, down in Judah. And he, and he feared that if his people went down to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, that they would be turned against him. So this is 1 Kings chapter 12. We read, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. I want to pause on this term, house of David, here. So a house was a lineage from a founding ruler. So all of the kings of Judah were descended from David. So they were all of the house of David. So another way of saying the king of Judah is to call it the house of David. So what does he do? The next verse tells us, After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. So this is what is referred to throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles as the sin of Jeroboam. It was the, it was the erecting of these golden calves at the southern border at Bethel and his northern border at Dan. Now this was a sin that the northern kingdom of Israel never repented of. God would send prophet after prophet to these kings of Israel to plead with them to repent of this sin and turn back to him, but they never did. And so eventually God allowed them to be defeated by their enemies and, and eventually completely destroyed at the hands of the Assyrians. Back to our passage, verse 4. 
Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So now we're introduced to the king of Moab, whose name is Mesha, and we're told that he had to pay Israel this really huge annual tribute. But when Ahab dies, he rebels. But we're not told what the rebellion consisted of. Did he just stop paying the tribute, or was there more to it? Reading on. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So putting this on a map, Mesha, the king of Moab, has rebelled against Israel. Ahab has died, and now his son Joram is king. And so he decides to go south, pair up with the forces of Jehoshaphat, and they're going to go through the desert of Edom to try to suppress this rebellion. Now, this is a picture uh, of the desert of Edom, and you can see it as a barren wilderness, no water in sight. So seeing this picture, you're probably not going to be surprised that things aren't going to go well there. So verse 9, so the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So now we're going to pause on this. The king of Edom, we're told here, is involved in this. So why would the king of Edom be involved? Well, they're going through his territory, so perhaps that's the reason. That would make sense. But also it turns out that just as Moab had been a vassal to Israel and had to pay this annual tribute to them, the kingdom of Edom at this time was a vassal to the kingdom of Judah. And we can know that from a passage that happens five years later. So this is 2 Kings 8, verse 16 and 20, where it says, In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. So this is five years later, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Edom rebelled against Judah. So at this time... Edom is a vassal of of Judah and so probably obligated to assist them in their military affairs. All right, back to our passage. So after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for their animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Now, looking back at this map, it sort of begs a question. So they spend seven days going through this barren desert wilderness of of Edom. They run out of water, and they're in this perilous situation. They can't go back. They have no water. They can't go forward. But if you look at the map here, there is a natural border between Israel and Moab at this blue squiggly line here called the Arnon River. So why didn't they just cross the river instead of spending seven days through this barren desert wilderness, right? Now, this is where uh, a knowledge of the geography of this land really comes into play. In March of this year, um, my wife Beth and I went on a mission trip with one of our church's international mission partners, and it was in Jordan. And while we were there, I snapped this picture. This is where the Arnon River empties into the Dead Sea. So now we understand that the Arnon River is actually a deep gorge carved through the mountains. And as you go out east from here, it opens up into this vast canyon. So here's Beth and I sitting on the northern rim of the Arnon River Gorge Canyon. So we're on the Israelite side looking over across toward the Moabite side there. So, there's more to this than just crossing a river. But it still doesn't answer the question because they could have made a long trek around the Arnon River Gorge and then they would have had access to fresh water. So we're still left wondering why they went through the desert for seven days. Back to our passage, verse 11. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Now this pouring water on the hands of, this is a Hebrew idiom that means he was a servant of the prophet Elijah. 
Now, in the chapter just before ours, chapter 2, we have that incredible scene where the prophet Elijah is taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. And he leaves his mantle with, the, with Elisha. And so now Elisha is the prophet of God on the scene. And one of the first things we read about of him is, is being out here in the wilderness when these three kings get into this perilous situation. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, this is Joram who's leading up this coalition, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So who, are we, who is he talking about here? Remember, Ahab and Jezebel had been worshiping Baal. So Elisha basically is saying, I'm the prophet of Yahweh, and you Israelites aren't worshiping Yahweh. So why don't you go to the prophets of, of Baal that your parents have been worshiping? After all, isn't he the, the God that brings the rain? And that, isn't that what you need? So why don't you go to the, to the prophets of Baal? Now, earlier in verse 2, we read that Joram had put aside the, the, uh, that sacred stone of Baal that had been set up there in Samaria. But it turns out that Baal worship is still grow, going strong in Israel during this time. Jezebel is still the queen mother. And, uh, and we can know that Baal worship was still um, heavily practiced at this time from a verse that we read about when Jehu actually becomes king. So we mentioned earlier that this is the person who 12 years after our passage would assassinate Joram and become king. Right after he becomes king, we read this in 2 Kings chapter 10. It says, They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And the people have used it for a latrine to this day. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. So Baal worship is going strong in Israel at this point. And, and so Elisha says, Why don't you go to your prophets of Baal? Ask them for help. No, the, the king of Israel answered, Because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. So Elisha agrees to inquire of the Lord on their behalf, but only because Jehoshaphat's there. Reading on, we're told, Elisha says, but now bring me a harpist. And I love that, right? They're out in the desert for seven days. They've run out of water. I mean, it's perilous. They're, they're you know, this is, it's, they're on the verge of, of of perishing, and he says, bring me a harpist. So while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. And then he goes on to say this. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city, and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. Now notice the repetition of this word every here and the inclusion of the word all. So Elisha now, after inquiring of the Lord, has just told them that the Lord is going to save you. He's going to provide water. He's going to save you. But not only that, he's going to give you complete victory over Moab. You're going to conquer every city. Reading on. Verse 20, the next morning about the time for the offering of the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. 
Now, this is that picture we showed earlier of the desert of Edom. Notice these trenches out in the desert. These are called wadis. The, the word wadi means a dry riverbed. They're, they're formed by water runoff from the mountains. So what you have in this area is that the, the mountains are made of this hard-packed sandstone. And then it, when it rains up in the mountains, the water rushes down through these trenches and it, and it runs out into the desert and forms these, these, uh, these wadis. So perhaps this is what happened here. God caused, caused it to rain up in the mountains. And even though they didn't see that, the water rushed down, and I'm going to illustrate this for drama here, and filled these wadis so that they had water to drink. So God saves them from perishing. Verse 21. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder Moab. Now, interestingly, in this area, the sand has this distinct red color to it. The name Edom literally means red. So the land of Edom literally means the red lands. And so you can just imagine this red sand mixed with the water, and they would mistake that for blood? Perhaps not. So, you know, so it had this red color to it, but most likely God caused this spirit of confusion and overconfidence on the part of the Moabites to lead them in, into this what we're going to read about in verse 24. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled, and the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. Verse 25, they destroyed the towns, and every man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Now this is exactly like what Elisha said would happen. This is, this is exactly what Elisha said they would do. Reading on, it says, Only ker was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded and attacked it. Now, ker was the capital city of Moab at this time. Right here, we're looking at a picture of the ruins of this crusader period castle called the Karak Castle. And it was built over the ruins of a fortress from biblical times. And so this is believed to be this location that we're talking about, ker right here. So you can imagine the Israelite forces surrounding this town and besieging this town. Now it said, men armed with slings surrounded and attacked it. Now that sounds a little bit silly, doesn't it? I mean, you're probably thinking, really? Slingshots? But it turns out that slingers were actually an important part of the military at this time. And so I was going to show you this relief just to illustrate that. So this relief was part of uh, reliefs that decorated the throne room of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. It was excavated in the ancient city of Nineveh. And he decorated his throne room with the siege of the Judahite city of Lachish that we read about in 2 Chronicles 32.9 where it says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish. And I picked this particular relief because if we zoom in on it, you can see the archers here. And then behind the archers, there are all these rows of slingers. So slingers were a part of the military at this time. And so you can just imagine a scene somewhat like this going on around the capital city of Moab with the Israelites. Verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Now, the kingdom, the kingdom of Edom being the vassal of Judah and Judah only being there to support Israel was probably the weakest of these three forces. So what we're being told here is that the king of, of Moab took his, his best guys, 700 of his elite forces, and tried to break through at the enemy's weakest point but even that failed. So if you haven't read ahead, you're probably going to not 
You're probably going to be surprised by what you're about to read. You probably didn't see this coming. So here we are, verse 27, the last verse of this chapter. Then he, this is Mesha, the king of Moab, took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. Now that just makes you want to say, what? What in the world? Why did he do that? I mean, what was he thinking? I mean, that's just, you know, that is horrible and terrible, and why would he do that? But as shocking as that is, the rest of this verse is equally as surprising. So the rest of the verse says, The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. What was this fury? Why did they return? So this king of, of, of Moab, they've got him surrounded in his capital city. He tried to break through at the weakest point. That failed. What can he do? He sacrifices his son, does this horrible, unthinkable act. And for some reason, the Israelites leave. Why? We're not told. This is the last verse of the chapter. Um, the next verse is the, verse, uh, the next chapter, and, and we have a wholly different scene. So, reading through the book of 2 Kings chapter 3, we're left with several questions. You know, why did they go through the desert of Edom and, and almost perish instead of just going around the Arnon Gorge? Why did this Moabite king sacrifice his son, do this horrible thing on, on the walls of the city, uh, of his capital city? Having seen that, why did the Israelites leave? Why didn't they finish the job? They had had assurance through the prophet Elisha that they would have complete victory every town. But for some reason, they left. And what was the end result here? Was this a victory for Joram? I mean, he certainly taught Mesha a lesson, right? I mean, he conquered all of his territory except for his capital city. So perhaps with this lesson being taught, he started paying that tribute again to, Moab, to, to Israel. Or was this a victory for Mesha? I mean, he took the best shot that Israel had, and he stood standing. So did he continue in his rebellion? So we don't know. We're left with all these questions. So now what I'd like to do is just share with you some archaeological um, artifacts and, and evidence and see if we can combine that with this and see if we can get a more clear picture of what was going on. So the first thing I want to share with you is the ruins of this ancient city called Ugaret. Now, Ugaret was just a little north of Phoenicia, where Jezebel was from. The interesting thing about this town is it was destroyed in the 1200s B.C. and it was never rebuilt. It was left in ruins. It was covered over with earth and, and forgotten about until the 1920s when it was discovered and excavated. So having been uh, destroyed in the 1200s, about 400 years before the time of our passage, and never being rebuilt, it sort of serves as a time capsule for, for that time period. Now, not surprisingly, one of the things excavated here was a stone monument to Baal. So here you see him with his right hand raised to the scepter and his left hand with a lightning bolt in his hand there. So bell worship was a big deal here in Ugarit, just like it was in neighboring Phoenicia where Jezebel was from. The other things that were found were a ton of these ancient inscriptions. There was more than 15, the fragments of more than 1,500 tablets that were found. Now there's a, subs a subset of these tablets that are known, referred to as the Ugarit enchantment tablets. They were um, basically ways or prescriptions for how to invoke the prophet Baal in different situations. Now, one of those said this. If you find yourself surrounded by your enemies, there's no way out. Here's what you're supposed to do. Sacrifice a horse, sacrifice a human, and pour out this liquid libation, and then cry out to Baal, and he will smite your enemies, drive them away, and save you. 
Now, obviously, that didn't work, right? Because Ugarit was destroyed in the 1200s and never rebuilt. So it doesn't, you know, this is pagan uh, nonsense, right? But this is, this is Baal worship going on hundreds of years before the time of Ahab and, and Jezebel and their son Joram. So it's very possible and likely that the Israelites would have known about this. So now they're surrounding this, this, uh, this city of, of Moab, the capital city of Moab, and the king of Moab brings out his son and sacrifices him to, uh, to his God on the city walls so that they can all see it. And then the Israelites perhaps said, oh no, he, he's doing the thing. That's what you're supposed to do if there's no way out. He's calling on his God. We're doomed. The God of Moab's going to smite us. We better get out of here. And so they fled back to Israel. I think that is a very likely explanation for what happened. 150 years before the time of Joram, David, the king of, of Israel, penned these words in Psalm 40, verse 4. He said, Blessings belong to those who trust in the Lord, who do not turn to demons and false gods for hope. The Israelites, led by Joram, were not trusting in the Lord. They were not worshiping the Lord. They were, had these superstitious beliefs in these pagan false gods. And perhaps because of that, they fled and, and, uh, and, and didn't have the final victory. The next thing I want to share with you is about this stone that you see behind me right here. Now, this is my favorite archaeological artifact. It is, it is just the coolest thing. So um, the discovery of this stone is almost as interesting as what's written on it. So I'm going to spend a few minutes telling you about how it was discovered. So it was discovered in the year 1868 in the sands uh, just outside the ancient city of Debon, which is about two miles north of where you saw me and my wife sitting on the Arnon Gorge a while ago. It was discovered by these, uh, this Bedouin tribe called the Bani Hamida. Um, now, after finding this stone laying in the sand, the first European that they showed it to was this uh, medical missionary from Germany whose name was Frederick Augustus Klein. And in his account of this, he said the stone was laying on its back in the sand with the writing side facing up. He couldn't read the writing, but he could tell it looked really ancient. And so then he negotiated with these Bedouins uh, to purchase this stone for the museum in Berlin. In the meantime, the English and the French got news of this. And so this bidding war ensued. And so the price started escalating. And the French archaeologist who was in Jerusalem at the time was this guy called Charles Clermont Ganeau. And because the price was escalating, he wanted to know exactly what was on this stone. And so he sent two of his Arab associates over to Debon to make what's called a squeeze of the stone. So a squeeze is like this wet paper mache material that you put over the stone and then you press it down into all the crevices. And then when it dries and you peel it off, it retains a negative image of what was on the stone. This is the actual squeeze that he obtained now weathered for 100, 150 years or so. But this is the writing uh, that was on the stone that was obtained from, from this squeeze. Now, it turns out, according to the story, that the members of the Bani Hamida tribe happened to show up while these two Arabs were trying to obtain this squeeze. And they thought, and probably rightly so, that the value of this stone was somehow related to this writing on it. And if they took the writing, then perhaps it wouldn't be as valuable anymore. So they attacked these two men. One of them was speared in the leg. And so according to the story, they, they ripped this squeeze off and fled for their lives back to Jerusalem. Now, um, because of this ferocity of these, of these Bedouin here, the Germans um, 
appealed to the Ottoman officials who were in control of the region at the time. And so they asked the Ottomans to send their forces in and to confiscate this stone so that they could deal with the Ottomans instead of dealing with these Bani Hamida people. Fearing that the stone was going to be taken from them and that they would get nothing for, for this discovery, the Bani Hamida Bedouin tribe came up with this plan. They built this raging bonfire around the stone, got it scorching red hot. And then they poured cold water on it to cause it to crack. And they started pounding it with boulders until they broke it into all these smaller, smaller little pieces that they individually could carry off and try to sell for some profit. So they destroyed the stone. Now with the destruction of the stone, the Germans and the English lost interest in it. But Gano here in Jerusalem had the squeeze. And so he sent some of his, his associates to seek out and buy as many of these uh, fragments of the stone as he could. And he actually acquired about 60% of the original stone. And because he had the, the writings that he obtained from the squeeze, he could take these stone that you see here on the left and arrange them into the original um, orientation that they were. And then they fabricated the rest of the stone, um, place, placing the writing on it that was from the squeeze. Now, the writing was, this ancient Moabite writing was actually easy to translate because it was almost identical to the ancient Hebrew script. One of, one of the uh, linguists uh, called it, it, described it as reading ancient Hebrew from a different dialect. All right, so let me read to you what's on this stone. So I'm going to, just for dramatic purposes, I'm going to use the background of the stone um, and, and as if we're reading the words off of this stone. So here has, is how the, the stone reads from the beginning. This is the first words of the stone. I am Mesha, son of Chemoshat, the king of Moab, the Dibonite. So this is the guy we just read about in 2 Kings, the guy that rebelled against Israel and sacrificed his son on the city wall. He erected this stone. So how amazing is that? Now reading on, he says this, My father ruled over Moab 30 years, and I ruled after my father. I made this high place for Chemosh and Queho, a high place of salvation, for he saved me from all kings and made me enjoy the sight of my enemies. So now we're told who the god of the Moabites were. He was this pagan god called Chemosh. And this is in complete agreement with the scriptures. And I'll show you one example of that. So if we go back in time, about 150 years to the time of Solomon, one of the reasons that the, that the kingdom of Israel became divided was because of the idolatry of Solomon. So when Solomon was in his younger years, he did some wonderful things, like overseeing the building of the temple in Jerusalem, writing the book of Proverbs that we're about to start a sermon series on. But in his later years, he turned to idolatry. And so we read this in 1 Kings chapter 11. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So in the Hebrew scriptures, in the time of Solomon, we're told that the god of Moab was this pagan god named Chemosh, and that's exactly what we read on this stone that was erected in around 850 B.C. And he goes on to say that he erected this stone to honor Chemosh, his God, because he saved me from all kings. He's probably talking about the event that we just talked about in 2 Kings 3. Remember he had the, the coalition of three kings, that, the forces of three kings that were surrounding him in his capital city. And he made this sacrifice, this horrible sacrifice to his God. Now we know that because of their superstitious fear, they fled back to Israel. In his mind, it worked. God saved me. He drove away my enemies. And so he erects this stone then to commemorate this great victory that his God gave him over this coalition of kings. Reading on. 
It says, Omri, king of Israel, oppressed Moab for a long time because Chemosh was angry with his country. Now we have the actual name of an Israelite king here, Omri. Omri was the dad of, of Ahab, the grandfather of Joram. And so from the stone, we know that it was during the time of Omri that, that Moab was subjugated and had to pay all this annual tribute that we read about. From the Moabite perspective, this was oppression. And he attributed it to his God must be angry with him to, to allow us to be defeated by these Israelites. Reading on, it says this, His son succeeded him, and he also declared, I will oppress Moab. In my days, he declared this. The son of Omri was Ahab. So here in this stone, we're told that Ahab and Mesha lived at the same time. And that's in agreement with our scriptures because it was at the death of Ahab that Mesha rebelled against Israel. And then we go on to read, But I enjoyed his defeat and that of his house. Now his house here means his descendant. The descendant of Ahab was Joram, the person that we read about in 2 Kings. And then he goes on to say Israel was destroyed forever. Reading on it says this, Omri had taken possession of the land of Matabah and he dwelt in it his days and half of my days, 40 years. But Chemosh restored it during my days. I built Baal-meon, and I made a reservoir in it. I built Kiriathane. Now, all these towns that I'm highlighting in orange here are all Israelite towns. And if we zoom in on this map here, and and I'm going to put in a blue squiggly line for the Arnon Gorge here. So here's Dibon. It's north of the Arnon in the Israelite territory. And then Matabal is way up here north still. So now we know the question that we had earlier, what was this rebellion of Moab? It wasn't just that they quit paying the tribute to Israel. It was an invasion into this area that the Israelites had occupied north of the Arnon Gorge. He goes on to say this, The men of Gad dwelt in the land of Adarot from ancient times, and the king of Israel had built Adarot. But I fought against the city and took it. I killed the entire population. This is an amazing statement on this stone. Remember earlier when we talked about this verse? There's Adarot, by the way. Remember this verse from, uh, from Numbers chapter 32 earlier when we talked about how Moses had given those tribes east of the Jordan? One of those was the Gadites. Now, the very next verse, verse 34, says this. The Gadites built Debon, Adarot, and Aror. Here on this stone, set up by a pagan king of Moab in the 850s B.C., we're told the men of Gad dwelt in Adarot from ancient times. This pagan king has just verified Numbers 32, verse 34. So how amazing is that? A verse, an event that happened 600 years before his time. He goes on to say this, Chemosh said to me, go take Nebo from Israel. I went in the night and I fought there from dawn until noon. I took it and killed everyone, 7,000 men, boys, and women, because I devoted it to Ashtar Chemosh. And we get just a feel here for how terrible this invasion was. Ashtar Chemosh is another pagan god that's mentioned in the scriptures. Nebo is where Moses was allowed to go and get a glimpse of the promised land. Now, most likely, this is where where his final resting place was. Most likely, the Israelites had built this shrine there to honor um, the the final resting place of Moses. And we read on the stone, it says this, I took from there the hearth altars of Yahweh, and I brought them before Chemosh. This is the personal name of God, the the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush 600 years before this, written in the same four letters as, as we see it in the ancient Hebrew script. So that the personal name of God is written on this stone by this pagan Moabite king 850 years before the time of Christ. Now we're going to skip over some verses on this stone because he just goes on to talk about some of the other cities that he conquered and how he built his palace and, and so forth. And then we're going to the end of the stone where he says this. 
The house of David dwelt in Horonain. And Chemosh said to me, go down and fight against Horonain. I went down and fought against the city and took it. Chemosh restored it in my days. So after telling us about his northern campaign against Israel, he now directs his attention at the end of the stone to a campaign against an, an area that was occupied by Judah. So the house of David here means the kingdom of Judah. And so he took this city from, from the kingdom of Judah. But an amazing thing archaeologically is the inclusion of the, of the name David on this stone. This is only the second time David has ever been found on an archaeological artifact. And, and it's, this, is, this is the oldest of the two. So this is about 150 years after the time of David. His name shows up on this stone by this pagan king in, a, in, in, in the land of Moab. So how amazing is this stone that was found in the sand and in this area that was occupied by Israel? On this stone, we have the name of Mesha, the Moabite king. We have the name of Omri, the king of Israel. We have the name of David. We have the name of Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. We have a verification of Numbers chapter 32, verse 34, that happened during the time of Moses. And we have a parallel passage of 2 Kings 3 from a Moabite perspective. What an amazing artifact is this. Now, if you're my age or, or older, you probably remember Paul Harvey and how he used to say, and now the rest of the story. So this stone gives us the rest of the story. Now we can recreate the events and answer a lot of the questions that we had just reading through 2 Kings 3. So during the time of Omri, Ahab's father, Moab had been uh, defeated and subjugated to annual payments to Israel. When Ahab died, Mesha took that as an opportunity to rebel, and the rebellion was an invasion of this territory that had been occupied by Israel, and so he takes it back from Moab. Now, when Joram becomes king, rather than crossing the Jordan right into probably the heaviest fortified you know, part of the, the Moabite forces, he instead goes south, pairs up with Jehoshaphat, and does, takes this calculated risk of going through the desert of Edom, sort of a flanking move that would, that would be a surprise to the Moabites, and, and they almost perished apart from a miracle of God. But God saves them, and then they move into Moab, and they start having this incredible victory. The king of Moab recalls his forces to his capital city, which the Israelites surround. And then he sacrifices his son as a last-ditch effort to, to his God. And the Israelites, under the leadership of Joram, believing in superstitious false foreign gods, are frightened by this, and they return to Israel. And then the king of Moab erects this victory stella to his God, commemorating him for this great victory that he had over Israel in the very land that he took from Israel. So now we have the rest of the story. Now, I want to give you in the last few minutes a contrast between what we just read with Joram and the king, of Jehos the king Jehoshaphat. So this is about five to seven years later because the Edomites, as we said earlier, um, rebelled in, in five years later and Jehoshaphat was only king for seven years after Joram became king. So this is an event that happens between five and seven years after the passage we just read. So Second Chronicles chapter 20 says this, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Edomites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in En Gedi. And if we put this on the map, En Gedi is on the west side of the Dead Sea. It's just 25 miles from Jerusalem. So we had this coalition of forces of Moab, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. They've invaded Judah, and they're only 25 miles from the capital city of Jerusalem. And, and, and Jehoshaphat is all alone. He has no help from Israel. So what does he do? 
Verse 3, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. And the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And before sending his forces out, we read this in verse 20. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. So what does this faith look like? The next verse tells us what kind of faith Jehoshaphat had. Verse 21. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. What faith! They took the worship team and put them in front of the army because they were assured that God was going to give them the victory. What faith! And then the next verse says this, As they began to sing and praise The Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Edom who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Amen. Amen. So, these words from David here, we see a contrast between these two kings. Blessings belong to those who trust in the Lord, who do not turn to demons and false gods for hope. The Joram and the Israelites were not trusting in the Lord. They had this superstitious belief in these false gods, and because of that, they were defeated by their enemies. Jehoshaphat had a true trust in the Lord, had faith in the Lord, and because of that, he had victory. Now for us, I think there are times when we feel like we're surrounded, when we feel like the whole world is against us, there's no hope, no way out. And so we have this assurance from this this passage way back in in the time of the Old Testament that if we trust in the Lord, he will give us the victory. Now, um, my time is up, so I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And as the worship team is coming forward, I never really thought about this in in this context before, but what we do here every Sunday sort of reminds me of what Jehoshaphat did because Jehoshaphat had his worship team to lead them in singing praises to God before they went out to meet the enemy. And each week we have the worship team come up here and lead us in singing praises to God before we go out into the world to face whatever it is that, that he might throw at us. If you will, bow your head and, uh, and let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so, so much for your magnificent word that tells us the, the, the truth that victory comes in trusting in you. Thank you so much for leaving these rocks in the sand that remind us that we can trust your word. And I thank you so much for, for sending us the rock of ages, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who through his finished work on the cross, we have the final victory. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this time to spend in your word and we just ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior, amen.